All right, let's, um, let's go ahead and begin to open with prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for a new day. We're thankful for um, the beginning of a new week. We're thankful to begin it um, with you in your presence as you call us to gather this morning as your people. We're thankful for your promises, how you're faithful to them, how we know that you're faithful because of the incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension of your son, all that he has done and is doing now for us on our behalf. We pray that you grant us your Holy Spirit now as we prepare for worship during the Sunday school hour, that you be near to us and grant us wisdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, we will not be, I'm sorry to say, chanting psalms this morning. Um, uh, Paul uh, called in sick about 45 minutes ago, and so um, he is unwell this morning, and um, so I'm, I'm calling an audible and um, stepping in, and um, we're going to do a little Bible study this morning instead. So um, that's the plan, and hopefully next week um, Paul will be all better, and we'll be back to um, making progress in our uh, learning of the Psalms and, and all of those things, which I'm very encouraged by so far. I want you all to hear me say that. I'm thankful for um, the progress that we've made the last couple of weeks and the things that we're doing, and I'm hopeful that we'll continue to grow um, in our appreciation for these things. Um, so we're going to spend today, instead of doing the Psalms, looking at um, Luke 15 is what I want to do today. Um, this is a you know, a handout that I created um, about a month ago for our women's Bible study. Um, we're working through the Gospel of Luke there. And so some of you may have already seen this, um, so I apologize for that, but hopefully there'll still be some uh, new insights as we um, talk about um, this chapter again this morning. Um, Luke 15, of course, is a probably very familiar chapter to many of us. Um, it, it tells um, three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And today we'll be focusing on uh, the lost son. Um, so a few just initial uh, comments about this parable um, as we begin this morning. Um, sometimes the parable of the prodigal son, as it's um, known, um, is isolated, right, from its context and sort of just um, talked about um, as its own thing, but it's occurring in a context in the Gospel of Luke um, one of those contexts is that Jesus has again and again been eating with sinners. Um, table fellowship has been the heart of his ministry in Luke in many ways. Um, he's spent actually chapter 14 talking a great deal about hospitality, um, what it means to um, invite, as he says, uh, the poor and the lame and the blind. Um, and the reason you invite those to your feasts is because they cannot repay you, whereas if you invite your friends or your family members or your rich neighbors, then they will likely return the favor and then uh, you will not be repaid. So he says better to invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, um, and because they cannot repay you. And so therefore you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God will repay you um, for your uh, generosity and your welcome. Um, and that leads right into um, 15. Um, and as it turns out, what we're going to see in this chapter is that God is the great host, um, that Jesus, as he calls us to hospitality, um, is, is not calling us to something that he doesn't himself embody and isn't embodied in the character of God. Um, and chapter 15 begins, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And that context is important. Um, because this, this word drawing near um, connotates not only 
um, that they were coming close to him in proximity, but they were, um, they were coming near to him in a sense that they were approaching him with, with deference, with interest, um, with loyalty, and they were hearing him. This, that verb to hear, uh, hearing the word, hearing the teaching of Jesus um, is something that is important in Luke. Um, earlier in Luke, um, Jesus was in a situation where people were saying, um, your mother and your brothers are here, they want to see you, and Jesus says, anyone who hears the word of God and does it, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. Um, so this emphasis on hearing the word. Um, as, as is going to become clear from the parables that are taking place in this chapter, um, the, the Pharisees and tax, I'm sorry, the tax collectors and sinners are not simply hearing Jesus from a posture of neutrality or a posture of skepticism. Um, they're hearing him as disciples. They are exemplifying repentance, and their repentance is in this, that they are drawing near to Jesus and hearing him. Um, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, interestingly, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus um, uh, was in a situation with when he called uh, Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, to follow him and become his disciple. Levi then throws a feast at his house and invites Jesus and invites all his friends who are also tax collectors. Um, and Jesus receives criticism for that. They say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? But it's important to see that the, that the Gospel of Luke is progressing and now Jesus is not only attending meals at the houses of, Pharise of tax collectors and sinners, he's actually hosting them, right? There's, the Pharisees are grumbling and saying, this man is receiving sinners and eating with them. In this passage, in chapter 15, Jesus is not only a guest at the house of a, of a tax collector, he's now the host. He's the one that they are coming to, and he is hosting them at his table. And again, this is a picture of the eschatological table of God, um, the feast that Jesus is coming to bring, and, um, and, and these tax collectors and sinners are being welcomed by him. The Pharisees have a problem with that. So he tells them three parables, right? Um, the first parable, um, uh, the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, he loses one, he goes and looks for it. Um, Jesus says, and when he call, comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And then in verse 7, he explains that parable. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 person, righteous persons who need no repentance. Um, so there are a lot of things we could say about this parable, but just in terms of context sake, um, two things. One is Jesus is obviously saying um, repentance is taking place right in this story. Um, that that he, he is using this parable to illustrate what the tax collectors and sinners are doing, and he is saying they are repenting. He, that's why he says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, um, righteous persons, who need no repentance. So he is underlying the reality that the repentance is taking place with these uh, men and women who are coming near and hearing him. Um, and there's also a sort of subtle critique, I think, of the Pharisees, because he says, um, then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Um, who is it that needs no repentance? Who doesn't need to repent in, the, in this world, in terms of outside of Jesus himself, right? No one, right? Everybody needs to repent. And so I think that's a little bit of a sort of 
invitation for them to consider their status, consider their critique of what Jesus is doing, which is receiving repentant sinners. And, um, and, and, and they clearly don't see themselves, I think Jesus is saying, in need of that kind of repentance. Um, then he says again, talks about the silver, the woman with the ten silver coins, she loses one. Um, she sweeps, she finds um, the lost coin. Uh, and when she has found it, Jesus says, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God over one sinner who repents. So you have that same explanation of repentance being the thing that's taking place here. Um, and also, again, this emphasis on the joy that God feels, the joy in heaven that takes place when sinners repent, that God rejoices over our repentance. And that's a huge theme, of course, and it's become um, even more on display. In many ways, it's the main point of the third parable is this joy of God, um, the joy that the shepherd has, the joy that the woman has, uh, the joy that the father has over sinners who repent and are restored um, to their heavenly father. Um, and that is the, the thing that we're being invited into um, as, as, um, we, as we live out the gospel, as we, as we follow Christ. Um, so again, just by way of introduction and context, sometimes Luke 15, the story of the two sons, and that's a difference, right? The first two parables don't have two things, they just have one thing that is lost. Um, so in, in the, the third parable, if it was going to follow the same pattern, we'd, we'd assume it would just be about one son, but it's not. It's about two sons. Um, so there's a kind of an appendix that deals with the elder son, the son who is not, at least as far as he thinks, lost. Um, and so, um, so this parable is different. It's, it's building on the first two, but it's going further. Um, and, and it's clear to, I want to say this very clearly, um, sometimes this parable has been interpreted as like, well, these are two different ways to relate to God, and you need to figure out if you're more like the older brother or more like the younger brother. And um, in some ways that's true, but the, it's important to say these are not just kind of like two parallel ways of relating to God. Um, the younger son in this story is going to exemplify repentance, and the older son is going to exemplify not repentance, right? Non-repentance, hard-heartedness. And so really there's only one way in this parable to relate to God, and that is the way um, that's exemplified by the younger son and the repentance that he shows by his behavior, his words, his actions um, towards um, his father. And so that's something to think about um, as we go into this parable. Um, I'm going to read it um, in just a second here, but first any questions or comments about anything I've said so far about this great parable? If anybody needs handouts, they're back on the sound booth if you came in a few minutes ago. All right, let me, um, let me go ahead and read and we'll talk about this. And Jesus said, there was a man with two son who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So before we get into the details of the text here, I just want to make a few comments. Um, one is uh, to read to you the definition of repentance um, from our Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism. Uh, question 87 asks this question. It says, what is repentance unto life? And answers, repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a grace that leads to salvation, whereby a sinner, so all of us, every human person, out of a true sense of his sin, so there needs to be some kind of understanding of our um, situation, our sin, our misery, our helplessness, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So we need to understand that God in Christ is merciful to sinners. Doth with grief and hatred of his sin, so grieving the effect of our sin and hating um, the damage that it has done to others and to ourselves and to God, turn from it unto God. So turning away from our sin and toward God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So not going back and sort of rewriting time as though we never had disobeyed, but new obedience, obedience that starts now at the time of repentance and continues on. 
Um, that's repentance unto life, according to our standards. Um, and I, I think it's important to say, of course, that what the standards are describing here is not just a sort of converting experience. Certainly repentance unto life is involved uh, with true conversion, um, but it is, um, as Luther says, a daily task that we are to embrace. Daily we sin, and so daily we're called to new repentance, repentance unto life. This kind of pa- this is the pattern of the Christian life um, that um, that we that we know, and it's related. In order to repent rightly, um, we need, of course, the grace of the Spirit and God. Um, but we also need to understand ourselves, our sin. Um, uh, we need, to, to, we need to, to, to see that, have a true sense of our sin, as the catechism question says. And we need apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. We need to understand that God is merciful in Jesus Christ. Those two things are key um, to true repentance. A, a knowledge of our sin and a knowledge of God, essentially. What Calvin says are the two um, essential parts of knowledge in general, knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God that are connected to one another. Um, so um, the reason I say this is because I think it's interesting, I have this on your handout, just a few comments in general before we work through the story in detail. Um, th- it's very interesting to note the contrast between the two sons' perspective on their father in this story, and I think that's one of the things that Christ is showing us in this parable is that the way that the two sons perceive their father is the thing um, that, that determines, in many ways, their response to him and how they live and whether they repent or not. Um, so the younger son, um, it's fascinating, right? Even in his um, uh, degradation in uh, a far-off country, as he's lost everything and is feeding pigs, um, which, of course, would be a very... Um, humiliating thing for a Jew to do, um, and can't even eat um, the, the, the food that the figs are being fed, apparently is either being withheld from him or is inedible for him. Um, he, even in that moment, um, assumes that his father will take him back, not as a son, but at least as a servant, right? And I think that's fascinating, like even at the very deepest point of this son's um, horror, um, he believes that he's always got a place. He's always, he can always come home. Um, and, and, he, and we'll talk about how he does that and the way that he negotiates that. And it, but it, I think it's fascinating that he just sort of understands that God, lo- that his father loves him enough to even provide for him, not let him starve. Um, at least he can come back and be a servant. Um, he then acknowledges his sin, right? He acknowledges when he comes back to the Father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Um, and so there's this clear acknowledgement. There's no excuses. There's no bargaining. Um, there's just an acknowledgement of um, his sin to the Father. And then the Son just receives the generosity of the Father. I mean, it's stunning, right? The point of the parable is, is how stunning it is, how the father responds with this kind of lavish, hyperbolic, over-the-top kind of welcome, right? Um, he, he doesn't just embrace him. He runs to him, embraces him, he kisses him. He doesn't just say, welcome home. He calls for the best robe and the ring, and he throws him a feast. And the son receives it. He receives all these things from his father. He, he takes it in. He has this posture of acceptance, right? He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 it's too much, right? Um, No, he receives the father's celebration, the father's welcome, 
um, the Father's lavish love that is given to him. And I think that's something that's really fascinating to think about as we think about true repentance, um, that it is connected to this understanding, this apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, which is like what this parable displays, right? It's lavish, it's over the top, it's more than we um, could expect. Um, and so the son demonstrates for us what repentance looks like in that way. In contrast, um, the older son describes himself as his father's servant or even his slave, right? And um, in verse 29, he says, look, these many years I have served you. Um, or, and the word there is related to doulos, the Greek word for ser- bondservant or slave. Uh, for many, these many years I have slaved for you, really is what he's saying. Um, I, have, I have done all these things for you. Um, you. I understand you're in charge and you have the right to tell me what to do, but I've done it, you know? Um, and so he, he has this kind of, it's, it's almost not even a, a son relationship with the father. It's a kind of contractual relationship, right? He, he is slave for him all these years. And then he tells a narrative, and this appears to be the narrative not only that he tells his father, but it's the narrative maybe more importantly, more importantly that he tells himself, right? It's his story about his life. These many years I have slaved for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, right? I've done all the things you've asked me to do, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So what he's saying here is that the father has never been generous with him, right? Whatever he has gotten from the father, the three square meals a day, presumably, and a place to sleep, and Um, whatever else he's gotten from the father, he's gotten because he earned it, because he's slaved for him these many years and he's never disobeyed any of his commands. And so whatever he's received, he's received because it's his right, right? He's he's deserved it, he's worked for it, he's been faithful. And, um, but his father has never gone above and beyond, right? His father's never even given him a young goat. He's never given him anything that he doesn't already deserve. Um, And I think that's, again, just a fascinating picture of how um, we can be tempted to interact with God, right? I think this is true, um, that we can be tempted to pray to God and to say, uh, look, God, you know, I've done all the things, right? I've been faithful, I've been obedient, I've been et cetera, et cetera. Now, the only way to tell that kind of story, of course, is to exercise some selective recollection, right? <laughs> um, um, that's certainly true for this older brother, and that's certainly true for us, because none of us have actually um, done everything that God has asked us to do or required us to do. Um, all of us have fallen far short of that standard. And yet, you know, I think probably what this is like, this temptation to say, well, yeah, yeah, but, you know, big picture, I've been faithful. I've been, um, I've done it all. I've slaved for you. I've served you. I've never um, strayed. And um, you haven't given me anything that I haven't deserved, right? And I'm just asking for this one thing um, that you haven't given me yet. And and it's not fair, essentially, is what the son is saying. And that's the third point. He is accusing the father of unfairness, right? Then he says, um, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Um, So he says, uh, look at that other guy um, who has not been faithful in the ways that I've been, who is not slave for you in the ways that I have, and yet you are going over the top you are going, you're being um, uh, hyperbolic, you're being lavish in your uh, generosity to him, and you need to understand, Father, that it is not fair. What I want is for you to be fair. 
And, um, and I think that's, that is the path. I mean, there, there are ways, of course, where that path feels sort of subtly right in the sense that it's about fairness and justice or at least some version of those things. Um, but it is, we need to see the path in this story of, of hard-heartedness, of rebellion, right, of being left outside. Um, and that, that is something for us to wrestle with. It's not demanding God to be fair with us is not the way of repentance because it doesn't have to do with understanding a true sense of our sin and apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, which has nothing to do with fairness, right, and everything to do with generosity. Any thoughts about any of those comments? Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, and, was, and we talked about this this summer, and we looked at, we preached on Psalm 73, which is a psalm that has a lot to do with envy and um, jealousy. And um, as that psalm displays, it's the, it's the envy, the jealousy that the psalmist feels for the wicked that almost leads him um, into disaster spiritually. Um, and, I th- and, and my experience as a pastor, um, in my experience as a Christian, in my own heart, um, I mean, jealousy and envy are so destructive. Um, in some ways, there's nothing more dangerous spiritually um, because it feels right, right? You're not, you're, you're jealous because you think you deserve whatever it is that you want that your neighbor has. And um, so it has this kind of self-perpetuating momentum um, that can be so, that's the most dangerous thing. You know, we can be sinning and not, know it, not be aware of it, have a true sense of it, um, as the question says. And that's, that's the most dangerous kind of sin. Yeah, James. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, um, that, that the, the first son's words of repentance, um, resonate so deeply with the, um, the Syrophoenician woman's words where she agrees with Jesus and says, like, yes, I am a dog. Right. Like, Right. But I'm coming anyway. Right. And that's the spirit of the son's yeah. words here where he's saying, like, treat me as one of your hired I'm not, not worthy to be called your son, treat me as one of your hired servants. There's this kind of like um paradoxical like the paradox of humility and boldness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to ask, right, yeah. Like, I'm trusting in your mercy, right. not in my worthiness. Right. Um, and then with the, uh, it's ending in a feast, I think that's the, um, that, like the prodigal son's words here are um, really good to, as a kind of uh, prayer of humble access to the, approaching um, the table of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a feast. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I appreciate that, James. That's a good connection there with the Syrophoenician woman for sh- woman for sure. Um, yeah. Sylvia. Mm-hmm. In this story? Yeah. With the elder brother, you mean? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, sometimes it seems like sometimes I have to have security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's right, and that is a dangerous thing, and it is, it is there's this kind of quarreling with, um, I mean, the fascinating thing about the elder son is he makes that story, he tells the story, um, these many years I've slaved for you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Like as he's saying those words, he is disobeying his father's command because what did the father say um, um, earlier in 24, um, uh, or in 23 rather, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Like he's saying that not just to the son, he's saying that to his whole household, right? To all the servants and his, you know, all his family. So the father is commanding that he join in this feast and the son is on the outside refusing to join in the feast and he's saying, I've always obeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. Um, So this narrative that he tells even in the moment is um, obviously untrue. Um, And I think that's a fascinating, and that speaks to the blindness that can come to us. And that's the most dangerous thing about this kind of hypocrisy is the way that it blinds us to our our true sin or having a true sense of our sin. Um, and that is connected to um, our lo- misunderstanding of the mercy of God in Christ. Yeah, Esther. Sorry, just 
That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Esther's asking, what about the Psalms where the psalmist often, um, and usually it's David, um, explicitly who's named, um, is, is saying, God, deal with me according to what I've done. Deal with me according to my righteousness. Um, Psalm 25 is a great example of that. There are many others. It's a, certainly a dominant theme in the Psalms. So a couple things I would say about that is, um, one, that David's prayers in that context are, um, are situated next to and in the midst of prayers that say, I'm a sinner, forgive me, I need your mercy. Um, I mean, I am constantly mining the Psalms, right, for the, our liturgy on Sunday morning, and I'm never going to run out of Psalms that talk about um, our need for God and the, repent and the grace that God gives us in response to our sin. Um, they're just full of it, right? So that's one thing I would say. Um, the other thing I would say is I'd certainly think that David is speaking, um, and I think self-consciously um, speaking um, in, a, in a Christological way, right? That he understands that he is saying these things in union with the one that is to come, with the Messiah, um, with the one who will be perfectly righteous, and that's how we pray those prayers today, right? And we pray them in union with Jesus. And we should pray them. We shouldn't um, excise those parts of the Psalms where the psalmist is pleading his case, so to speak, and saying, I've been righteous. Um, deal with me according to your righteousness. Vindicate me, right? It's a very common theme in the Psalms. We should pray that, but we, of course, we don't pray it, as I'm sure you would agree, Esther, um, on our own merits, on our own track record, um, but we pray it in union with the one whose track record is uh, commendable, is perfect, is depend, you know, we can depend on. And um, yeah, so I appreciate that. I mean, I think that's a good, that's a good question. And, and certainly the Pharisees, I mean, there are elements of what they're doing that's understandable um, and right. Um, and, but it, there's this sort of subtle missing of the mark that sort of throws the whole thing off, you know? And I think that's the, that's what we need to think about and consider. Yes, Kathina. Yeah. Right. No, that's right. I appreciate that. Yeah, he the son never he never seems to lose fully his sense of sonness, um, and um, and that's the grace of God. Um, but it's also his understanding, not only of his desperate place, but of God's mercy to him in Jesus. And um, those two things, just coming back again and again. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to believe. That's what we need to understand a true sense of our sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Um, that's what we need. Did you have your hand up, Roy? Okay. Eric. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sowing your wild oats, whatever. Yeah. Sure. Right. It is. Yeah, and as we think about that in our own lives, I mean, all of us have been given so much by God in our mere existence, in our being made in his image, in our capacities for um, beauty and for um, intelligence and for um, work and for play, like all those things that God has given us. And um, and we do. We do waste them and, and um, squander them. And um, and I love, too, this, this line in the parable, right, um, that he came to himself. Um, and we're not told how he came to himself. I mean, I think the answer has to be the Spirit of God, right? Um, but there's this, that's the turning point, right, in the parable. He, he came to himself. He looked around at the pigs and the pods and the, um, you know, pig pen that he was in, and he said, what am I doing? Like, what? What am I doing? I'm a son. I have a father. He's got this great piece of land, you know. And like I know those servants, you know. I know that they have three square meals a day and they have a warm place to sleep. And like, what am I doing? Um, and and I think it's just fascinating to see. Like, it's almost like the scales start to fall off there. And and we know this. Like, we know this is what conversion looks like for someone who has really gone in a wrong direction, rebelled against God for a number of years, if they're going to become a Christian, they have to have this experience of coming to themselves and realizing the utter folly of what they're doing. Um, But this is also true for ourselves and our sanctification, right? We can go down a certain direction for a while and indulge in a certain sin and be blind to it, even the damage that it's doing to us and to others, and then we can the Spirit of God works, and we come to ourselves, right? And we say, what am I doing? This is so foolish. This is so um, not life-giving, right? The opposite of that. And, we, and, and that it's not, but it, again, it's not only realizing the horror of what we've done, it's, it's realizing the mercy of God in Christ, um, that he is going to be good to us, and, and he's going to love us and forgive us. Um, and that, that kind of pattern is the pattern that plays out over the Christian life again and again. And um, that's what being made holy looks like, is realizing that kind of thing in new ways um, over and over again. Yeah, James.
Yeah. Right. Like, at the beginning, yeah, the story, there's a deep know, arrogance. Yeah. Kind of attitude. Yeah. I have a right to something from my father. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's really, it's, um, he's coming to himself and then, you know, a shift from, from that. Let me, um, no, I think that's right. I think there's that movement away from claiming his rights and to casting himself on the mercy of the father. And let me show you this thing. I think this is a cool thing in this story. So when he came to himself in verse 17, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And then he comes up with a plan, right? He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I think it's really fascinating because what he's done here. I think he's not fully repentant yet. He's not fully come to um, a place where he's going to receive the Father's mercy because he's still in this kind of bargaining mode with God, right, with his Father um, who stands in for God. Um, he's saying, I have a plan. I know how to persuade my Father um, to I can get back. I will come up with this plan, and the plan will be, um, I, I am sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I can work it off, Right? If I know you have a lot of people on your, your land that you employ um, to you know, harvest the crops or whatever, and so um, I'm going to just give me a job, right? And eventually we'll work it back, and I'll, I'll pay off the debt that I owe. Um, and I, I mean, I get it, right? right? This is an understandable sort of reaction to the thing that he's done, that he realizes he's done now. Um, but what's fascinating is he doesn't get to execute that plan, um, it doesn't work out that way, right? And part of that is because of the response of the father. And he arose and came to his father with this plan in mind. But even as he's still a long way off, his father saw him, which of course means what? Where's, what's the father doing? He's looking for him, right? He's at the window or front porch or whatever it is. Or, um, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the since seems to be on the road, even as he came, he doesn't even get to the front door. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops. Like, I think that's a really important shift. Like, all these details matter, right? That's a really important detail, that his plan was to say those first two things and then to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. But when he actually comes to the Father, he doesn't say that. He just simply says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops. And there's, he doesn't have a plan anymore, right? He just realizes that all he can do is cast himself on the mercy of the Father. And that's the right place to be. That's the safe place. Um, and what does the Father do, right? The Father says, to his servants, <clears throat> bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. So we see even in that verse, right, he's not going to be a servant. <laughs> um, he's going to be a son. He says to the servants, bring the robe, put it on him, the robe of sonship, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And it is, it's a death and resurrection, um, which is true um, for any act of repentance that God graciously gives us. Um, it's an act of death, it's a death and resurrection because we, we die, we realize I'm helpless, I, I can't save myself. Um, I can't make a bargain with God to get out of this thing that I'm in. All I can do is say, um, I've sinned against heaven, I'm no longer worthy um, to be called your son. Now what? Right? Put the ball in his court, see what he does. Um, and that, and that's, that's the way. That's the way of repentance. Um, so anyway, I think that's something really interesting to think about, seeing how that hired servant piece gets dropped out when the son actually meets the father. Yeah, Sam, did you have a comment? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah, the the love of the father, that's a great point. Um brings the son from death to life um in some way in many ways he's still dead as he comes and he's that's what he's saying right he's saying i've sinned i've i've messed up i'm i'm not worthy and the father restores that worthiness restores that identity um, by clothing him in the way that he does and adorning him with these things the ring and having the feast and uh, yeah i think that's a great point that the father really is in that moment calling him from death to life. He's making him alive again. Um, the last thing I want to emphasize here as we close is, uh, friends, you, you need to see the joy of the father um, over the repentance of the sinner. Um, that is true in all of these parables, right? It's the main point. Um, the shepherd leaves the 99 and finds the one and then he has a big party. And I think it's kind of fascinating because Jesus says, which one of you wouldn't do this, right? And the reality is that nobody would do this. Um, nobody would leave the 99 to find a one and then they wouldn't have a party. They would just say, okay, cool, don't run away again and you know, go, to, go to bed, you know? Um, th- there's a kind of extravagance in these stories um, that and the emphasis of all of them is the rejoicing that happens at the end. And I think what we need to see, and again, this has to do with apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, is that Jesus is saying three times in succession so that we don't miss it. It's the one common theme throughout all three parables that God rejoices over sinners who repent. Like he rejoices over your repentance. And this isn't just about like, you know, the guy that joined a motorcycle gang and you know did all sorts of things for a long time and then came, like, yeah, he rejoices over him for sure, but he also rejoices over you when you repent, not just on the day of your conversion, so to speak, but each day as you repent. When we gather on Sunday mornings and we do the thing we do where we confess our sin and we put ourselves in God's hands, like he rejoices over that. 
Like that's what he longs to see in his children um, is repentance. And, um, and I just want to encourage you with that. And I think that's something that has, like this, all of this is linked. It's the, it's the confidence um, of the younger son in the mercy of the father that opens a door for him to truly repent. And I think that's true. That's why we keep doing it all the time again and again. Because every time we repent, we realize God is merciful again. It gives us new freedom to repent in even deeper ways. Does that make sense? Like it's connected. Um, as we see the mercy of God um, for our initial repentance, we, we can repent more. Um, and it, but it's linked to knowing that God really does rejoice over you. He, the, the angels in heaven rejoice over your repentance. Um, it, it delights your Father. And to, so to feel that delight, to know it, to really think about um, the robe and the ring and the feast um, is something that is really necessary for us to do. Um, because that's what drives repentance, is that knowledge of God's extravagant, lavish mercy for us in Jesus Christ. Um, one final thing about the story that's interesting, that word, let us kill the fattened calf, he says, and celebrate. The word kill there is not simply the Greek word for put something to death. It's a word that's used specifically in sacrificial contexts. Um, let's sacrifice, sacrifice the fattened calf is more literally what he's saying. Um, which I think has obvious um, Christological meaning, right? Um, this is what the Father does. He, he does not, the Father does not wrestle, and I think the point there is the Father does not like grudgingly send his Son to die for your sin. The Father rejoices to send his Son to die for your sin because this is the heart of God. This is who he is. The heart of God is revealed to you in the death of his son, which he does so not grudgingly, but joyfully, um, because it is the way home. It is the way for sinners um, to embrace repentance and be restored um, to their father. And so I think that's something that, that um, yeah, to wrestle with and think about. All right, let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this story, um, how we can study it this morning even when none of us knew that we we're gonna study it this morning. And yet it has power and uh, meaning because of the way that you speak through your word by your spirit. Um, I'm really grateful, Father, for that um, reality. And I pray you'd grant us um, confidence in these things, that you'd show us what repentance looks like, um, that you would do that, Father, by allowing us to see our sin truly, and even more than that, um, truly, fully apprehending more and more the mercy that you have for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.